keep your Bibles open to Mark 8. We're going to go right into our teaching this morning, and then we will sing some more songs and have a baptism. Well, it was my senior year of high school, and it was my last day of school. I was pretty excited about that. We were about to have a chapel. Oh, junior church, you can be dismissed. Sorry about that. There we go. If you're a junior church, go ahead and exit. It was my last day of school. We were about to have like an assembly where all the seniors would gather and we'd get up and give our testimonies and talk about how our schooling was at that school. And so we were all pretty excited. The, the whole school was excited about this. And afterwards, we'd have lunch and it'd be a lot of fun. And so I had my last class before that little assembly. And again, my senior year, last day, you had senioritis, as they would say, you know, for a, a number of months. And uh, a number of weeks, and now it was finally at that time. And I was in my last class there, and the teacher got up and was talking and saying something, and I was sitting in the back, and I started cutting up. I like to have fun in class, and some might call me the class clown. But anyway, so I was in the back, and I was cutting up a little bit, and he said, he said, Ice, quiet down. And so I was quieted down, you know, and then I started snickering and laughing a little bit more. And he said, Ice, would you like to go to the office? And I said, sure. In my pride, in my, you know, like, oh, it's my last day. What are you going to do? And he said, okay, go ahead. And at that moment, dread came over me. Because the person who was the principal of that school was my father. (laughs) And I walked out of that class carried my book bag, and with my head down, went to my dad's office and sat down, and I was no longer, no longer excited. <laughs> now I had dread of what was about to happen. You know, in Mark chapter 8, I kind of think that's probably how Peter was, how he felt at that time. He was at a high, right? I mean, Jesus was teaching them about who he was. Jesus asked them questions. It's like, again, like he's in that class. He raises his hand. Oh, I know the answer. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's right, Peter. And you know, Peter, on this rock, on on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And this is really exciting. Peter's getting the answers right. Peter knows it. Jesus then says, oh, and by the way, here's what's going to happen to me. Let me clearly tell you, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, die, and be resurrected. And Peter goes, wait a second. And in his pride, in his haughty, Mr. Confident spirit, he rebukes Jesus. Not so, Lord. And Jesus then takes him and rebukes Peter. And he says to Peter, in fact, look in Mark chapter 8. So look in your Bibles, Mark chapter 8. And look how he rebukes Peter. He says in verse number 33, get Behind me, Satan. That's quite a rebuke, isn't it? It's like going to your office. You're going to the office and your dad's the one sitting in the office. Except a lot worse. And he declared to Peter and the disciples, they were not trusting him as true followers. And then he goes again. We talked about this last week to the next verse. Look at verse 34. He gathered a crowd together. And he taught them. He says, here's what it really means to follow Jesus. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, following me me means you give up your life, Peter. It means you fully trust in 
me. And Peter wasn't doing that at this moment. But Jesus then also got even more serious and actually warned the people around him, what would happen if you don't follow Jesus? Look down in verse 38. He says, listen up. If you are ashamed of me and my words, which who is that at that moment? Peter, Peter saying, no, Lord, I don't think the, the whole suffering and resurrection or death and resurrection thing is what I want. I think that's not how I planned my life, Jesus. I'm actually planning something else, planning like this awesome kingdom you're going to set up as the king. He says, okay, so if you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, in other words, if you're going to reject me and follow the way of the world, of him, that person will the son of man, that's remember, that's Jesus, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. In other words, if you reject me, Peter, in my words, then when I come back at my second coming, I will reject you. So this is a really good news for Peter, right? I mean, if you're Peter, you're going, you went from up here to be like, oh, and it's not just a, it's not just a rebuke. It's actually condemnation. He's saying, Peter, you, if you believe like this and anyone else in this crowd, if you reject me and my words, you actually, listen, it's very serious. You're actually going to hell. You realize that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'll be ashamed of you when, I, when he comes in glory. So think about Peter, Mr. Confident, Mr. I'm the top pupil to Jesus. You would reject me and you would reject me. And imagine if you're Peter and the disciples, you're probably in shock at this moment. We're followers of Jesus. We get the answers right. And then Jesus turns around and tells this whole crowd, if you don't follow me like this, then, then I will reject you when I come back in my second coming. And so what Jesus does here is he gives the truth to them. And some people might say, well, that's kind of mean to say, isn't it? Should Jesus say something like that? Well, Jesus is a, is a person, is God, the God man, and he always tells the truth. But the Bible says that Jesus was full of truth and what else? Grace. So when he tells the truth, he also brings grace and says, let me give you hope. And that's actually what you see at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, verse one, Mark chapter nine, verse one goes with Mark chapter eight. Jesus tells the truth, but also gives hope. Look what it says in verse one. He said to them, truly, here's the truth, guys. And here's some grace as well. I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus gives these disciples some hope. He just said, listen, if you don't follow me and my words, I will reject you. But guys, there are some standing here and I'm going to give you a little taste of heaven, a little taste of the kingdom of God. What Jesus was alluding to was what was going to happen in the next part of Mark, uh, Mark chapter nine, which was his transfiguration. Jesus was saying at this moment, he's saying, I promise you guys and prophesy that in a little while, someone will taste the kingdom of God. And then what we see is that six days later, he is transfigured on a mountain. And notice in that verse one there, he says, some of you will not taste of death until you get a taste of the kingdom of God. In other words, death is coming. Like death is that time when we're separated from each other and we're separated from God. What's interesting, if you look at that word taste of death, it's actually a Jewish idiom, which means 
It's a picture of a person drinking poison. It's actually someone drinks the poison of death. So in the Jewish mind, the idea was when someone dies, it's like they're drinking that final poison and they die. You know, friends, the reality is, is each one of us in here will have a day where we drink that poison of death. Do you realize that? We don't like to talk about that stuff, do we? We don't like to talk about death. But the truth is, there'll be a day when that final drink will be drank, and you will have that sip of death, and you will die. Some drink that poison at, at ripe old age in a nursing home. I've, I've stood next to the beds of, of people who have, have died. I think of friends who went into a coma, and they were older, and they're in a nursing home, and they take that final breath, and I see them from life to death. Now, that's a moment you never forget, by the way. Some people drink that final poison suddenly as they're zipping down the road in a car, and they hit a tree, and they drink the final cup of death, and they die. And some are told that they have a certain disease or cancer, and they, they kind of drink that death, you might say, slowly. And slowly, over time, their body breaks down and they die. Some are young when they drink it. Some are old. Some are rich. Some are poor. The, the point is, it happens to everyone. So the question we must ask then is, what is going to happen to you after you die? Well, Jesus knows the answer. And this is what Jesus is showing these guys here. It's like, this is going to happen, guys. But let me give you a taste of what is to come. What does God have prepared for those people who actually follow Jesus Christ? Yes, suffering is going to happen. I'm going to be rejected by the elders. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. And then something glorious awaits for me. And you guys need to keep this in your minds as well. So what's the hope that Jesus gives here. Well, look at verse one. He says that they're going to see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is really the environment of God's glory. It's the environment of God's glory where, where God rules in power and holiness and in righteousness. So, so Jesus promised to give them a glimpse behind the curtain of life to see God's glory and his rule and his perfection. So what was he speaking about? Well, look down in verse number two. In verse two, it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them. So this was intentional. He led them up a high mountain by themselves. Just throws three guys. And he was transfigured before them. So verse one, he promises this is going to happen. You're going to get a taste of heaven. In verse 2, six days later, he fulfills that promise. Jesus had an amazing supernatural event he wanted the disciples to experience, to give them hope for eternal life. So the question I have before us today is, how did the transfiguration give these men assurance of life after death? I mean, why did Jesus transfigure before them. And we will talk about in a moment what that means. Why did he do that? Well, he was giving them a hope of life to come. And how does the transfiguration do that? Well, transfiguration reveals to us three realities. Number one, the transfiguration revealed the truth of Jesus' nature. Revealed the truth of Jesus' nature. The scene takes place on a high mountain. 
Now, what mountain was that? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but they were in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And the highest mountain in that area is, um, is Mount Hermon. In fact, it's one of the highest mountains in all of that area around Israel. And it's the northern part of Israel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give an account of the transfiguration. And Luke records that Jesus took these four up there so that they could pray together. So they go up to a, for a prayer meeting on top of this high mountain, possibly Mount Hermon. And something happens. In fact, look at verse number two, what happens. And he was transfigured before them, verse 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And the Greek word behind transfigured is metamorpho. You hear that? Metamorpho, like metamorphosis. He, he changed, he transformed in front of them on this mountain in front of these men. What does it mean that he was transfigured, that he was transformed in front of them? Well, Jesus essentially lifted the cover of his humanity and gave them a glimpse of his divinity. You see, Jesus had, throughout the Gospels, declared himself God. He said, I'm the son of man. Remember, we said that's an Old Testament allusion to the Daniel prophecy that the son of man would come and be worshipped. And who's the only one that can be worshipped? It's God. And he's over and over declared that I am God. He's demonstrated he's God. Right? He raised people from the dead. Who can do that? Only God. He's healed hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of people. He's done amazing things like calming the sea and controlling the weather. He's demonstrated that he is God, but they haven't seen it with their eyes. So on this mountain, these three men get to witness Jesus pull the veil back of his humanity. It's almost like Jesus pushes the pause button, right? Jesus is God. He always will be God. He is the omnipotent omniscient God. And so when Jesus came to the earth, he didn't lose his divinity. In fact, Philippians chapter two teaches us that he gave up his rights to declare and display his glory, to display his full glory, but he, he kept his divinity. He still was God. He just gave up the rights to show everyone that he was God. And he humbled himself, became a man and humbled himself to the point of the cross. So what they saw here was Jesus removing it for a temporary moment, the, the, the cloak of his humanity, and they saw his radiant glory. And Mark, look at how Mark, it describes it as his clothes became radiant. The word radiant carries the idea of a bright, sparkling fire. His clothes and his person became intensely white, like an intense white fire. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17 verse 2 it says that his face shone like the sun his clothes became white as light luke records that as they were praying the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white so what you see here you see like this this brightness shine forth from jesus i mean picture that on this mountain here the disciples are praying they fall asleep actually and then they wake up and they see Jesus and he's transformed. His glory is shining forth. Now, this was not his full glory of his nature. This was just a little glimpse. You know, 
Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, well, if I show you my glory, you're going to die. Right? If you, were, if you were actually to see the true glory of God in here, all of us would die. We can't do it as humans. But what, what Jesus does and what he did actually also for Moses was give him just a glimpse, just a, a darkened, if you want to say, a tamed down view of God's Glory. So the transfiguration revealed the hidden nature of Jesus and revealed that Jesus is the divine, holy God. In fact, if you if you read through this passage, you should be remembering that something like this happened a couple times in the Old Testament. Right. If you, mountains, the light of God's glory, people falling down in fear. When did this happen? Well, this was on Mount Hermon. But in Exodus chapter 3, we can go back and remember that the first time that Moses saw the glory of God was in front of a bush. Remember that? The Bible says that he led his flock. In verse 1 there, he led his flock. And you can read it on the screen up there. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. He came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord. Now, who's the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. How do we know that? Because he was worshipped. So here's this manifestation of Jesus. And it says he appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. There was a miracle taking place. And here is this person, the angel of God, brightly burning. And it's God himself. It's Jesus Christ before he was incarnate on this earth. And listen to what the Bible says. When the Lord, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him in the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. And then he, who's that? That's Jesus. That's God in that bush there, brightly shining. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He was saying this is God's glory. I am holy. Don't come near. You are not like me. You are a sinful man. Show the reverence that I deserve. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. See, when he just got a glimpse of God's glory and that, and that angel of God and Jesus pre-incarnate, he hid his face in the ground. Because God's glory was so unlike him. God's amazing glory is is really the perfections of his attributes shining forth from him. In fact, 40 years later, Moses has a similar experience. And this is on another mountain. This is on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, verse 15, Moses went on to the mountain. What did he do on that mountain? He received the law from God. So the first five books of the Bible, are we call them the, the Pentateuch. And from that time in the mountain is when God gave him some of the, the law of God. And Exodus 24, 15 says, Then Moses went to the mountain, the cloud. Now, do you see any similarities? The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh, he called to Moses in the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of all the people. What did they see on that mountain? They saw the glory of God. 
And again, it was just a darkened part of it because if they would have seen the full glory of God, they would have been, they would have dropped dead. But what, what did the, how did the people respond? Remember how they responded? Like they fell down and they were in fear before the glory of God. So the glory of God appeared on the mountain to Moses like a bright, devouring fire. And this is the display of God's glory. And how did they fall? How did they respond? They fell down in fear. And how did they respond on that mountain when they saw Jesus? What does the Bible say? They fell down and they were terrified. Why were they terrified? What were they afraid of? When they saw the brightness of that fiery, radiant light, they were seeing the glory of the Lord. And I was thinking, what's a, what's a good illustration to help us understand what that looks like? And I was thinking, well, the Bible kind of gives one. It says, Jesus' face shone like the sun. So I want you to think this morning, just, just, real, just real quick about the, the sun. Think about the sun. The sun is a blessing. It's also terrifying if you think about it. Think about the sun. The sun has glory and power. The sun lies at the heart of our solar system and is by far the largest object in our solar system. The sun holds, listen to this, 99.8% of the solar system's mass. That's pretty cool. And actually, it is 109 times the diameter of the earth. In other words, 1 million earths could fit into the sun. And the sun's surface is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And inside the sun, at its core, it reaches up to 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Pretty much anything that would enter into its core would be gone, right? And the sun is driven by nuclear reactions. And I read this. It said that you would need to explode 100 billion tons of dynamite every second to match the energy of the sun produced. That's what NASA says. So there's so much of the sun that's amazing. And actually, there's a lot that we still don't know. Scientists still don't know. It's probably the one place in our, in our solar system here where, where scientists are not thinking they're ever going to land something, right? Because it's just amazingly hot and, and bright. The sun radiates light as it burns its, its hydrogen and it burns its, its gases and helium. So there's a glory to us, the sun. And actually, the sun is very beautiful, but if we didn't have the cover, if you could say, if we didn't have the cover of the earth, we would actually find out the sun is very dangerous, isn't it? In fact, think about just the danger the sun causes. The sun could burn our retinas, right? If we didn't have the cover of the, well, even if you just looked at the sun directly, right? You could look at it, it could burn your retinas. Cosmic rays shoot out energy particles at the speed of light. They have the ability to blast through and and hurt your DNA, destroy your DNA. The sun emanates gamma rays and X-rays and ultraviolet radiation that could damage living cells. So if we didn't have the blessing that God has given us of this earth and the covering, the ozone and all the things like that, we would be dead, right? <laughs> so praise be to God for creating an amazing earth and amazing sun and how they all work together. And people are like, oh, it just happened on its own. Yeah, right. Good one. It's amazing to think about the sun. There's, there's a blessing there. The sun causes things to grow. The sun causes, gives light to us. But also there's a danger. And it's very similar, you think about, to the glory of God. right? The glory of God should be praised. Like we should praise God for the amazing sun, right? We should praise God for his glory. But there's also a danger in the glory of God. 
Because the glory of God is, is, is God's amazing holy attributes. So what is God's glory? God's glory is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. In other words, it is it's who God is in all his beauty and his holiness. When we say the word holy, the word holy means set apart. In other words, God is not like us. He's set apart from us. He is holy. He's perfect. He's unique. And the glory of God is, is really the radiance of his holiness. I'm just trying to give you a picture of what, God, what, what, what God's glory is like. God's glory is so powerful. It's so holy. It's so perfect. It's so righteous that just a glimpse of the darkness of his glory, if you could say just a glimpse of his glory, causes men and women to fall in fear. And someday God promises that he will appear in his full glory. And what will that be like? Well, look back at chapter 8, verse 38. Mark chapter 8. Just go back to the last chapter. I read this earlier, but remember what I read. Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes and notice the glory, the full glory of the Father. If I asked you in here, do you want to go to heaven? You might, you'd probably say yes, right? I mean, if you ask the average person, like, do you want to go to heaven? They'd say yes. Well, what is heaven? Heaven really is the environment that God's glory resides. And so we all say, oh, we'd want to be with heaven. We want to be with God. But do you realize what heaven is? Like, heaven is the manifestation of God's holiness and his glory shines forth. And do you realize that you and I cannot enter into heaven? Because God is so glorious. God is so holy. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. In other words, we fought things, we said things, we've done things that broken his laws. We've all sinned and we fall short of his glory. And the interesting thing is the Bible teaches that those who don't obey the gospel, in other words, those who don't believe Jesus and follow his word and, and they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in the gospel and obey the gospel, the Bible says you will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And listen, from the glory of his might. So if you don't come to God and he doesn't transform your heart by the gospel, then when you see the glory of God, you will be rejected from God's presence and from his glory. So Peter, James, and John witness a peek into the glory of God. They see the brightness and the holiness of the holiness of Jesus. And how do they, do they respond? Well, look down in verse number six. Verse six. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And so they should be, because they got a glimpse of the holy glory of Jesus. So on one side, you have the disciples who fall in fear of seeing the glory of Jesus. Yet, they see people walking with Jesus. Think about the paradox there. There was Moses and Elijah. Moses saw the glory of God a couple hundred years before that. He fell in fear, but now he's in the presence of God. 
And now these men, Peter, James, and John, they are, they've fallen in fear. So there's a little paradox here. So here you have the glory of God shining forth and men falling in fear. But then secondly, the second reality that the transfiguration, the transfiguration reveals is the hope of Jesus' presence. There are people in the presence of Jesus walking. Just, I want to just show you this little glimpse that God gives us of heaven. Look at verse 2. The end of the verse says, He was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Verse 4. And there appeared with him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What Jesus gives them is a picture of heaven here. Notice this. First of all, they saw Jesus in his glory. Jesus had transformed himself and to probably how he was going to look after his resurrection. What is, when we think about heaven, what is heaven? Heaven is God dwelling with us. It's, it's the presence of God. In fact, friend, you realize Revelation 21 the Bible describes, this is the end of the Bible. The Bible describes God bringing heaven down to a new earth he creates. And listen to this. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. In verse 23, the glory of God gives its light in its lamp. And its light, sorry, its lamp is the lamb. So, so the best part of heaven and eternity is what? It's being with God forever. And his glory will shine out. Also notice this. Look in verse 2. You can notice that there's two people who had once lived on earth. Hundreds of years before that. They had died. And they were living again. So what you notice is you have two people who are existing after death. They have these bodies they're living in. And they're actually talking to Jesus. And that would be pretty cool to witness, wouldn't it? Notice they're talking to him. What are they doing? They're fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ. And who are these men? Well, Moses was the Old Testament lawgiver. Elijah was the Old Testament prophet. And Moses gave the law. So he called people to follow God by giving the law. And Elijah called people to come back to God by teaching the law. So both of these men represent the Old Testament prophets, or you could say this way, they represent the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes in the New Testament era, and Jesus, he preaches the word of God. Both those Old Testament prophets did miracles to authenticate the word of God. Jesus comes, and he does miracles to authenticate that he is preaching the word of God. And then you have Jesus standing there with these two men in a glorified body. So Jesus is giving these guys a foretaste of the hope of a new glorified body. And the reality is when Jesus died and was resurrected, he was resurrected with a brand new body. And he, he showed his body to the men and women that were around him after his resurrection. Why did he do that? To give them a hope that they could have the same glorification of a body. They could have the same kind of glorified body. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? Well, Philippians tells us that. We're longing for heaven. We're looking for the hope of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. Look at the Bible says that we're waiting for Jesus, our Savior, who will transform. He will metamorphize, but will be transformed. Our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables 
him to subject all things to himself. And friend, the hope that we have at the end of our life, there will be a day that Christ will come back and he will give us a glorified body. Now, I want you to look at this here because you see these two men and you, you might ask the question, does, does Moses and Elijah, do they have glorified bodies now? Well, they had some kind of body then. Sometimes people picture heaven and they picture these spirits floating around. Oh, you know, that's how people picture heaven. That's just man's made up imagination. What are people like in heaven right now? It's a little bit of debate amongst pastors and theologians about what that actually looks like. Some people say, well, you're going to get your glorified body when Christ comes back. And I do believe that's the case. You will receive a glorified body. Is there a temporary body you have in heaven? Well, that's the debate that people have. My personal position is, is that God probably gives us some kind of temporary body. You see that with these men right here. Anytime you see someone that was once dead that is now alive, they have some type of temporary body. In fact, you think about it this way. Jesus is in heaven, and does he have a, a body? Yeah. I mean, he still, in some sense, has the humility of having a body. So my, my point is, though, that someday we can all hope for the, the reality of having a glorified a glorified body. And so the Bible pictures heaven as a real place. And you see these men, they're real men. I mean, looked at Moses, they looked at Elijah, and they looked like Moses and Elijah. Now you might ask, well, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, it could be that God just gave them that special knowledge. I mean, who knows? Maybe in heaven, we won't have a problem remembering people's names. Maybe actually we'll all have name tags on. No. Or it could be that maybe God gives us the gift of just knowing people's names. I don't know. But they knew who these guys were. They looked like real people. It wasn't like they were like, is that spirit guy there? No, that's, that's Moses and that's Elijah right there. So recognize that they, were just, they were, looked like regular people. Notice they were talking with Jesus. Can I tell you, friend, that's heaven right there. It's fellowship with God. I mean, what, what we get as a gift on, on this earth is we get to have fellowship with God as the Holy Spirit regenerates our souls and gives us and restores that relationship with the Father and us as his children, we get to fellowship with God. We get to fellowship with the saints. And then that's eternity. We get to fellowship with God and with each other. And so you see them. Like I said, a little picture of heaven. But again, there's, there's this paradox there. Because on the one hand, Jesus appears in his glory and the disciples fall down in fear. On the other hand, Jesus appears with two men who are standing in the presence of Jesus in some kind of glorified body talking to Jesus. So three are on the ground in fear and two are standing. In fact, both these men, I don't have time to go here, but both these men in the Old Testament, when this glory of God appeared to them, they fell down in fear. But why aren't they in fear now? Like what's changed? What's changed? Well, God changed them. God changed them. So how do we put both of these together here? What's interesting is you see this paradox, and Peter, I think, attempts to put this together. Notice how he does that in verse number five. He's trying to work out this problem. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Is that true? Yeah, it's really good. Like, this is really amazing. This is good. So how do we prolong this? Like, how do we keep this? Like, I would like to keep heaven on earth like this. How do we keep this? So what does Peter do? Let's make three tents. One for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, what's Peter doing here? Like, why is he saying this? Well, it says in verse six, for he did not know what to say 
for they were terrified. So why did he say this? Well, first of all, he didn't know what to say. He was in shock, right? So probably good lesson. If you don't know what to say, keep your mouth shut, right? Thank you, Peter, for teaching us that lesson. But also I think here that Peter actually just instinctively does what we do as humans. Like he experienced the glory of God. He wants to continue it. And he's like, how do I keep this? How do I keep this? Oh, I got an idea. Let's, let's make tents. I can make tents for you. Like make one for you, Jesus. And you know what I think is happening here is I think Peter is thinking about how can he do something to extend, extend the presence of the Lord? It, it's his human instinct that we all have. And that's the instinct to say, what can I do to gain this? Like, what can I do? He, notice he doesn't ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you, what do you think you could do to, to extend this? It's like, oh, we can build tents for you, Jesus. What? And it was probably the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was probably, there was a, there was a cultural thing to that, what was going on at that moment. But, but what Peter is doing here, I think, is Peter is, has his human attempt to extend God's holy presence there on earth. In fact, I think this is how people, most people on earth, approach God. It's like, God, what can I do to get into your presence? Like, how can I build my life to be a good enough person to get into your presence? Like, maybe if I'm religious, maybe if I go to church, maybe if I obey your commandments, then, God, you'll be happy with me and I can go into your presence, right? No. Like, how foolish of us to think that anything we can do can gain God's presence. It's kind of like a little child taking a little match and striking it and holding it up and looking at the sun and saying, yeah, my match is a lot like the sun. And then it goes out. No, I don't think so, right? Like your little, what you consider goodness is so small and it's not even adequate to allow you to go into the presence of the Lord. The Bible says there's no works that you can do that can gain entrance for you into heaven. In fact, that's what Paul Patingo's testimony was, wasn't it? He was like, I grew up in a pastor's home. He's like, I was trying to be good enough. And then I realized I can't do it. Like I can't be good enough to earn God's favor. And that's how most people falsely instinctively think. So you look at all these religions out there, all these things, and what's all the religions out there? How can I gain favor with God so I can be with God? And what is God's answer to Peter when Peter says, what can I do, Jesus, to extend this? What does God say? Look at verse number seven. A cloud overshadowed them. A voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Mark wrote that it was a cloud that overshadowed them. Luke recorded that it was a bright cloud. So here you have another picture of light and a cloud, the glory of God. And it literally covers the mountain there, covers them. These guys guys are on the ground in fear before the Lord. And the Father, God the Father, speaks to Peter. Now, how terrifying would that be? What does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter keeps having his mouth go off and God speaks and rebukes him and says, listen to my son, Peter. Stop following your own ideas. Stop listening to your heart. Stop following your own thoughts. Listen to Jesus. So the third reality that the transfiguration reveals is number three, the reliability of Jesus' words, the reliability of Jesus' words. He says, listen to my son, listen 
to him. His words are reliable. He has the words of life. So what are those words? What, what should he listen to? Well, we just read that in Mark 8, 31, where Jesus said that he must suffer and he must be rejected and die and rise again. But actually, there was another time when Jesus was talking here that I think probably the father was, was referring to. And when was that? Well, Moses and Elijah are doing what? Talking with Jesus. What are they talking about? What are they talking about? Well, Luke tells us, this is really interesting. You might say, well, how did you know, Ben? Well, I actually just look it up in the Bible. <laughs> That's anything I'm telling you, things I'm telling you from what I studied in God's word. So Luke chapter 9, verse 30 says this. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And what did they speak about? And spoke of his departure, which was he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, at Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying, they were, I was, the Bible's teaching that they were talking about the fact that he was about to go to Jerusalem only a couple months, and he was going to die and be resurrected. That's what they were talking about. Now, that would be a, a cool conversation to listen to, wouldn't it? And, and this was reported by the disciples. So they must have heard something about that conversation. And what the Father is saying is, listen to what Jesus is talking about. He just told you six days ago. Six days ago, They're talking about it now. He's going to keep talking about it. Now, I think the Father was, was telling him was to listen to his words, which means listen to the truth of what Jesus offers you, and that is his life, his death, and his resurrection. Your friends, do you realize that the, old, that the scriptures here are the words of Jesus? These, these are the words of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament speaks about God coming in the future to die and be resurrected. He's going to come and live as a man and die and be resurrected. That's the point of the Old Testament. It's all looking forward to that. Then the Gospels here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say, hey, this is how it happened. And the rest of the New Testament says... Jesus died and was resurrected. Now, repent and believe in Jesus. And so the Bible tells us, listen, God is holy. You are sinful. You can't earn your way to get into God's presence. But Jesus came down as a man. He lived a perfect life. He died and was punished in your place on the cross. God the Father poured out his wrath for sin upon his son. And then Jesus was resurrected. And Jesus gained victory over death and over sin, and he can transform your heart and someday transform your body. And Peter, at some point there, he recognized the truth of Jesus, not just in his head, but then with his heart, he followed the Lord. In fact, listen to what Peter said after Jesus' resurrection. He preached this. This is really interesting. In Acts chapter 3, he's preaching to a group of people who are religious, who are following their own ideas of how to go to God. And he said, listen, verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, who's that? Moses and Elijah, that Christ would suffer. In other words, the Old Testament tells us Christ was going to suffer. He has thus fulfilled. So what should you do? What, what should you do based upon the fact that Jesus lived, died, was resurrected? What should you do? Verse 19, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. How can you enter into God's holy presence? Well, God's got to transform your inner heart. He's got to blot out your sin. He's got to give you his righteousness. And how does that take place when you turn from your own way 
and you realize my way can't get me to God. I turn from my religion. I turn from myself. I turn from my sin and say, Jesus, I give my life to you. What does he say in verse number 22? He continued to preach. He said, Moses said this. Well, he saw Moses on that mountain, didn't he? In fact, he read this in Deuteronomy. Moses said this, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet. Well, Moses said that. Who was that prophet? That was Jesus. Like me from your brothers, you shall listen to him. That sounds strangely familiar to what the father said, doesn't it? This is my son. Listen to him. Moses says, there's a son that's coming. There's a prophet coming. Listen to him. And eventually, at some point, Peter said, Jesus, I'm listening to you, and I'm following you. And Peter puts us in here because he wants us to remember also the warning. Look at verse 23 on the screen. Why is it important to listen to Jesus? And it shall be to every soul who does not listen to that prophet Jesus shall be destroyed from the people. Friend, there's a warning there. If you don't listen to Jesus' gospel and follow by faith, the Bible promises that when you taste the poison of death, you'll be separated from God forever. And there's no hope for you, for, for you apart from Jesus Christ. So what is God's call for you today? Friend, listen to the words of Jesus. Whoever desires to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For if you desire to save your life, oh, I'll try to be good enough. I'll try to do it myself. I'm going to go my own way. You're going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, I trust you, Jesus, and the gospels. I believe in the gospel, Jesus. God will save him. What is a prophet? A man, if he loses if he, I'm sorry, what is a prophet of man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? Those are the words of Jesus. And friend, will you listen to Jesus today and trust him? Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that right now you are in the glorious heaven above in a resurrected body that you promise to give us someday. And God, you promised to transform our bodies. You have transformed our souls by the power of the gospel. And we cling to nothing else but you, Jesus, and your work. God, I, I think there probably are people that are in here today, maybe listening to the sound of my voice that have not trusted you. And I pray, God, your spirit will reveal to them their need for Jesus Christ. We declare you, Jesus, to be our Savior, to be our Lord. We look forward to living with you forever. But may the gospel of God be clear, and may we continue to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.